Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Nick W., Paul M., and Mike P. We've got Paul Gorenson on the show today. Paul is Chief Operating Officer at Energy Fuels, a U.S.-focused production-ready uranium company with assets spread over the Midwest, Great Basin, United States. Energy Fuels is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol UUUU and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol EFR. Mr. Gorenson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Paul, it's a pleasure, and thanks for agreeing to come on the show to share some insights. Of course, uh, credit goes to Derek Iwanaka over at B Metals for introducing us. And you've had some very notable time in the uranium business, specifically in the U.S. Why don't you give us some background, including some negative and positive highlights over your time in the business? Well, sure. I've been in the business for over 33 years, and uh, I started back in 1987 uh, with uh, Uranium Resources Incorporated. And then in 97, I moved to uh, Rio Lago Mining, which became BHP. And then uh, back to Mustania Uranium, a privately held company, uh, and then Cameco, and then ultimately to Energy Fuels. Through that time, I mainly focused on in situ recovery operations in the United States. It, back in the 80s, uh, Uranium Resources was a, a fairly premier producer, and that's where I got my start in the operations, uh, both on uh, the wellfield development, uh, as well as reclamation, permitting, licensing, operations in the plant. So I had the full spectrum. I would say that was probably the most uh, working for uranium resources was a great experience because it got me started into the business and it helped me develop everything I know now because I learned from a lot of mistakes, but also a lot of successes for that 10 year period. That also primed me to move to uh, Rio Algum Mining in, in 97 uh, to uh, where I began doing their government affairs work and regulatory affairs work uh, for their various operations in New Mexico, Wyoming, and Utah. But also, I also work on their Canadian and some of their Chilean properties. Even though the Chilean ones were, were copper, not uranium, it did give me a little bit of experience outside of the uranium space. But what I also learned at the at my time at Rio Algum is that uh, we had to go through a period of, of closures. And, and uh, when we talk about downturns and everything else, uh, I at that period of time, I thought I was going to become the expert in mill decommissioning and tailings decommissioning and site cleanup uh, for the rest of my career. And that continued even after BHP uh, acquired us in 2000, or 2000. But come 2003, we started seeing some changes in the market and uh, in 2004, I was brought on board with Mustania Uranium, a privately held company. Uh, uranium company was actually an oil and gas and uranium company, where I started up the Alta Mesa project. It was a so now my career shifted back into production, and uh, we took a completely greenfield operation 
and developed that project to being one of the premier producers during the, the run-up of the uranium price back in the 2005 to 2007, 2009 period. Uh, and it was a very successful operation. And one of the things we were allowed to do is also do quite a bit of exploration. We were able to discover unidentified uranium ore bodies that, uh, with Greenfield Exploration on a, a single property that had 200,000 acres of contiguous property. So it was an exciting time. Because of my success there, I was uh, hired by Cameco to run their U.S. operations. Uh, that would be the operations in, in Wyoming and Nebraska, the in-situ recovery. And we were the largest producer, in uranium, yeah, producer of uranium in the United States for quite some time. But the, the good thing with being an executive at Cameco is you get an opportunity to not only work on just where your, your effort is, but... Uh, you get an opportunity to work with the corporate management as well as uh, work with people who are running places like critical operations like Cigar Lake and MacArthur River and Key Lake operations, as well as their corporate development folks and everything else. So I was able, uh, my time at Cameco, I, I was working on government affairs, also the operations, uh, supporting their operations up, you know, where I could uh, in Canada and also in a corporate development that is looking at new opportunities. So it gave me a, a good good experience. And 2013 is when Cameco decided to change their strategy, shifting from their W strategy to where they're at now, basically reducing their effort. I left Cameco and went to go work for Uranus Energy as their uh, chief operating officer and president at that time. And uh, for the startup of the Nicholas Ranch operation, which at 2014 was the newest uranium production facility at the time. And we ramped that up in production. Got it up and running successfully, and uh, by mid-2015, we were acquired uh, through a merger with Energy Fuels. I'm the, the only executive from Uranus that stayed on board through the Energy Fuels uh, transition. Successfully kept Nichols Ranch running. And in 2016, we went back and acquired the Alta Mesa project, which is the one I mentioned working for Mustania, so now we have that project. Now, of course, at the time we acquired it, it was still in standby and still is today. But uh, we uh, were able to bring on a premier in-situ recovery uh, portfolio that uh, is unrivaled in the United States. Then in uh, 2018, I became chief operating officer for uh, energy fuels, now brought in all the conventional mining, the mill, White Mesa Mill, as well as the ISR projects under my accountabilities. Now I've, I've become a, I'm becoming as much as I can as an expert in conventional mining in-situ recovery and, and the mill operations. So that's pretty much the cap of my career and where we're at today in, in these very interesting times that the global industry is in. An extensive background, Paul, and you've gone through these different transitions, these acquisitions. Can you speak to a little bit about what Steve Antony was thinking in 2015 and 2016 about some of these acquisitions that occurred because I know you obviously had relationships with him. And then of course, now that Mark Chalmers is there, what was going on in the eyes of, of management from you know 2015 till now as far as arguably market bottom area acquisitions that you guys probably got uh, at pretty good prices so steve he was a great boss he he did a good job and you know it was uh, uh my time working with steve was real rewarding steve's strategy was to become the consolidator of the industry he saw that the, the only way the industry was going to survive as if it became more consolidated, where obviously corporate head, uh, overhead was consolidated as well as bringing in the operations together to build a better 
stronger company that uh, would be able to leverage that strength going into the future. And that's what he did with the, the acquisitions uh, by bringing in the in-situ recovery, the Aeronics Energy acquisition brought in, he was able to bring in another set of portfolio of operations. So now we're not, now Energy Fuels was no longer just a, but the conventional uranium mining company in the, in the US. Now it was also the, it was a full spectrum uranium production. And with the acquisition under his guidance, we were able to acquire the Alta Mesa project, which is obviously, you know, near and dear to my heart because I was there from the beginning. But also it brings in another set of production that's been very, you know, had a, a very successful production run with lots of resources ahead of it, but also a tremendous amount of blue sky uh, of uh, uh, potential exploration resources out there that have been identified that this needs you know, some more drilling. So he's able to consolidate these major production centers and, and by bringing in com the combination he brought in, we have basically three production Air, uh, facilities that we could leverage into the market when the market was would be favorable. Uh, with the transition to Mark, that vision hasn't changed. Uh, Mark brings a, a practical operations uh, aspect to the to the business. Uh, that uh, <clears throat> by him being being a miner all the way from the days he was dr uh, drilling with a jack leg, drill all the way to his experience of Paladin and the successes and challenges that Paladin went through, he brings that to the table. So he brings in a, a more of a, a different approach than Steve did, uh, a more outgoing and a more proactive approach to the industry as far as uh, taking the assets we have now and making the best ones we can. Yeah, it's interesting because you guys had a period where Energy Fuels was probably one of the stronger companies domestically in the U.S. with exposure in the U.S., obviously. And so you guys had opportunities to acquire projects that you saw were good during a downturn and then also maintain uh, the White Mesa Mill, which has put you guys arguably in a very enviable position amongst the peers within the domestic U.S. industry. Paul, outside of energy fuels folks, who has been instrumental in the development of your expertise in this business? Can you speak to a few people that you've kept relationships with and perhaps the audience should keep an eye on? Yeah, yeah, I can. So there's there's folks that I've worked with in, uh, for quite some time that I have a lot of respect. Some are retired, but they're still somewhat engaged. Uh, Harry Anthony used to be with formerly with Uranium Energy Corp. Uh, he also was with Uranium Resource. He's the one who brought me into this business, and we stay in a tremendous amount. Yeah, we always stay in contact. He's been a good mentor outside of the, the business. Uh, there's other folks that are in the business that I've gotten to know and respect that I that I that I've uh, still work with. Uh, there's Wayne Hiley with Peninsula, the CEO and managing director. Of, he and I have known each other, so we both had both had hair on our heads, and uh, that was back since the '90s. <laughs> And uh, same with Ralph Canode is another one I've known for years as well, who also works for Peninsula. Uh, there's folks that uh, work with and uh, the other, founded some of the other companies, like smaller ones like Encore that I've known, Bill Sheriff and Dennis Stover for years. Dennis Stover is the CEO of Encore. He's been a, I would say that Dennis has been a good friend of mine for probably 25 or 27 years. And uh, we worked together at Rio Algum. Uh, he, you know, we have good enough relationships. So when I was applying as my, uh, as a professional engineer, uh, back in my days at Uranium Resources, Dennis was one of my references for that. Uh, and so I have a lot of respect for those folks that I named. And, and I, outside of the company, they are some of the folks I, I stay in regular contact with. Where are we at in the uranium market now, Paul? 
we've got broad market forces that seem to be prevailing first, but then we have positive production suspensions coming out of nearly all remaining production centers. Where are we headed, and will the broad market action govern the response in the uranium sector? That would be the the expectation. So right now, we've been seeing this con continuous uh, destruction of primary production. So the we're you know across the world uh, with respect to uh, whether it's production coming out of Australia or production coming out of Canada, there's been deliberate decisions to cut back production uh, to uh, address the oversupply situation. Uh, but most of those folks truly responding to that are what, what we would call Western producers. That is uh, the, the Cameco's, the, uh, the ERA's, uh, Rio Tento's uh, of the world that have been responding to the market conditions what we've seen is that uh, there has been some response out of Kazatomprom and their operations in, in Kazakhstan, but it's not always been exactly as been advertised. And so that's been somewhat of the challenge with the supply and why we've seen the, mark, the, the pricing not really move much is because the market's being influenced by principally by state-owned companies and uh, how they're managing their, their sales, et cetera. They're not required to, to make a profit. Uh, and as a result, it makes it much more challenging uh, competing against those type of forces. We have other forces too, secondary supplies in the market that are that are intruding uh, and, to, and competing for a market space for primary producers. Now we've had, uh, the, the market has been, in my experience, the years I've been, has been triggered by what we would call black swan events or unexpected events, uh, either a lot of people characterize them as catalysts or other other approaches. So, back in the uh, the 90s, uh, we had a where the Russians to fall the wall basically uh, caused allowed the Russians to begin dumping uranium into the market. Uh, we had a, a, a trade case that brought them back under control. We saw a spike in the uranium price as a result of the outcomes of that. That lasted for a very short period of time until some government actions happened, where basically 70 million pounds of uranium from the government inventories hit the market and drove the price back down. So, and then uh, that basically stayed status quo until obviously 2003, when we started seeing some production cutoffs because of unexpected events, such as a fire at uh, Olympic Dam, shutting down Olympic Dam, uh, uh, inflow incident at MacArthur River, production shortfalls. And obviously, the most notable one in October 2006 is when uh, Cigar Lake flooded, which really kicked off the last spike. Now, we've got a similar situation uh, occurring that are outside our, our control as an industry. And it's a current worldwide pandemic of the, uh, the coronavirus, creating concerns about people just effectively working together at operations to where it's caused companies and countries to make uh, very difficult decisions. Uh, with respect to their businesses, and uh, a good example is is the uh, the cessation of or temporary suspension of production at Cigar Lake as a result of the coronavirus uh, response, and then also uh, with respect to the the production coming out of Namibia. Now uh, we have uh, with Namibia effectively shutting down all mining activities uh, to address this as well. We're seeing this in other commodities, whether it's copper, whether it's gold, and other places outside the U.S., where mining industries are being sh shut down by the governments, or even the companies are just making decisions because they can't uh, get people safely to and from work. 
And so that's creating some very difficult decisions about shutting down production, et cetera. We're still, you know, in the U.S., it, it's not going to, you're not going to see as big of an impact because we've already been cutting back just simply in response to the overall market conditions. Uh, so it's not as evident. But if you look at the other segments uh, of the of uh, mining in the U.S., we see some coal mines that are shutting down, not because of economics, because of coronavirus break outbreaks. And so this may continue for a while and create another catalyst where operations may not may stay off longer than expected, or or and we may see other production uh, interruptions occurring elsewhere. Uh, there's talk that uh, maybe even uh, production coming out of Kazakhstan could be impacted as well. There's obviously nothing official or anything that drives that, but it's, it's, it's speculation, obviously, that uh, is driving that. But uh, we're running into, a, you know, we already had been on the cusp of a supply-demand flip with the prior production cutbacks. What we may be seeing now is the coronavirus is just going to be, and the, the response to the coronavirus and what we have to do as a business to respond is going to create a situation where that that uh, expectation of where the market supply and demand would shift is moving more to the current time, uh, to closer to our current time than it would be going out in the future, simply because we've been running on a very thin supply chain uh, that uh, is focused on very few suppliers. I think, uh, you know, right now over the major production centers, it's five to six around the world that are supplying into the, the global nuclear fuel supply chain. And as those become more tenuous, as they respond to the uh, coronavirus situation, it's exposing the vulnerability of the supply chain to interruption. And uh, we can see that somewhat already when you look at it from the perspective of other minerals, such as uh, rare earths and others coming out of China, how those have become constrained, being focused on very narrow uh, supply chains with not much diversity. I believe that we're going to see the same thing occurring here on the short term, but it's going to change some strategies, uh, the risk profiles that, uh, that utilities have been running with, which is basically keep costs low. Uh, is going to shift to more uh, looking at supply diversity. Uh, I believe that the U.S. government is going to continue to look at it again harder. We've had the, the nuclear fuel working group out there. They've got some findings, but it's all been overshadowed by everything that's going on as this whole pandemic is going on globally. And so there could be some considerations that come out long term as we shift to have to get past the, the biggest uh, issues dealing with just the virus and, and the health impacts of it as we begin to recover our business. Businesses, whether utilities and also uh, possibly the governments are going to look at these supply chains and shift the way they, they look at doing their risk management. I think you made a lot of good points in terms of obviously the just-in-time inventory model will be brought under a lot of scrutiny uh, in a lot of industries as a result of this virus that's happened. And do you see that this virus and these potential continued suspensions of production potentially coming out of Australia or Kazakhstan, do you see that this is really the event that will make utilities start to think about how they look at their contracting? You can't help but think that because they've shifted from being looking at supply security, security of supply over the recent years when we got really inexpensive interest rates as well as inexpensive uranium, where they're looking at, uh, they've been looking more and more uh, at drawing down inventories and relying on just in time to spot market to provide what they need. Uh, they're going to have to go back and look at it from their whole strategy perspective because 
one thing that gets lost, we talk about the 10, you know, the United States is the largest consumer of uranium in the world as a single uh, point. And we have the largest number of reactors in the fleet. And even though we've been seeing uh, less reactors operating, if you've been following the Energy Information Administration, they put out the monthly uh, power production and the nuclear power plants are producing more electricity today with fewer reactors than they were even last year. That should be surprising to some because it doesn't make sense when you hear about how much pressure they're under financially and everything to see they're actually generating more electricity now. That means they're consuming more inventory because uh, the uranium doesn't become more efficient uh, just because they're running it. They're running these plants longer, they're running the plants more efficiently, but they're still consuming uranium at the same rate that it's always been. Atom of the energy that an atom of uranium delivers, that doesn't change, that's constant. Uh, what it means is that they're consuming more. So it's creating, you know, as a shift to looking at uh, security supply, they're going to say, well, geez, even with these 96 reactors running, and hopefully soon to be 98 with uh, Vogel, they're going to be looking at the fact that they are missing critical elements within their supply chain. They can't just rely on one supplier, whether it's enriched uranium product from Russia or, or uh, rely solely on, on spot-sourced uranium coming out of Kazakhstan because there's a long supply chain and it's vulnerable. Uh, all it takes is you know one Asian outbreak, another pandemic to hit, uh, and their supply chains uh, become uh, more vulnerable. And look at if, if they're, as they're drawing down inventory, their strategic inventories, they're increasing their vulnerability to supply interruptions at the point where they're burning more, you're generating more electricity than they have in a long time. And so what I'm saying is that it's going to have to change the way that they behave in the market. They're going to have to look at more long-term supply. And my hope is they also look at diversity of supply, which means they're looking at U.S. Uh, origin uh, uranium as being a, uh, a solid supply. So the interesting thing is we hear countries are cutting back on production uh, to respond, you know, shutting down mines or respond. In the United States, it's, it's almost the opposite as far as what the government is doing. Every state so far was Wyoming, Arizona, Texas, and Wyoming, as well as the federal government, have said that mining is an essential activity and therefore must be allowed to operate because we need the fuel. And that is passed down to uh, the, the nuclear, I mean, the uranium producers as well as being classified as essential workers. Now, uh, given the fact that we've reduced operations, it, it does provide us ability to get people to the mines, but it says a different aspect of what the U.S. government's doing versus other countries as it being essential to keep the, 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 the supply chain, whether it's for any other type of energy or just nuclear, uh, they're tying us in with those. And, and that's, that's a good thing. And that should help sell our argument about security of supply with the domestic producers. Yes, absolutely. And I agree. Certainly the redundancy and certainty of supply via diversification of your sources makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, you might bank at certain banks, you might have other banks and, and foreign jurisdictions, you might have gold stored at home, you might have gold stored in, in a vault somewhere, you might have different ways of, of sourcing different things that you need in your own life is what I'm getting at. And so why not <laughs> for the utilities to, uh, to take on the same type of practice makes a lot of sense. And I think this is probably the wake up call for that to happen. Well, let's talk a little bit more about utilities and the nuclear fuel working group for a moment. 
What are you hearing out there and what events to you are important going forward for uranium based on what could happen out of this fuel group outcome and also what potentially the utilities are pondering as we go through these events? Well, I'll speak to the nuclear fuel working group uh, because that's probably the freshest on everybody's mind. So obviously, energy fuels has been, I would say, one of the, from the industry side, has been one of the thought leaders with respect to the nuclear fuel working group and the effort to uh, support their their work. You know, it's been a uh, an interesting uh, time with respect to uh, my experience in working with the government. Uh, I would say that we've had, a, you know, through the nuclear fuel working group, energy fuels has had access to various levels of government that we probably never would have had in the normal course of business. When the president passed that, it was 13 different agencies that were listed. And I found out there were probably 15 or 16 total that were brought in as part of this uh, interagency working group. What it boiled down to is that we were able to present to them the various, industry, as industry experts and stakeholders to the uh, the working group where they could actually begin to understand what they were doing. And the, the interaction with the government process, there were questions and answers continuously throughout this process. Uh, obviously, until they began to start, once the interagency uh, activities began to, to trail off and were, the report was being generated, obviously, you would expect the, the questions slowed down and, and the interaction slowed down. But we stayed engaged with them. As you can tell from the president's budget, there's a desire to support the industry. The unfortunate part is we don't know whether we, we know the working group is still pending. The report is still pending. We do know that some of the agencies are still providing input into it, but uh, the, the amount of with, you know, we had much more contact with what was going on until about four or five weeks ago uh, when uh, I would say just after, right around the time Secretary Briette testified in front of the Energy and Natural Resource, uh, Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee about the timing of the working group and, and the, the obvious recognition that there needed to be immediate relief uh, those are obviously messages that came from the White House. It came through this process, but the clear thing is they got drowned out by this global pandemic. Now, and now the United States is under a national emergency, which means all hands on deck dealing with the emergency, and it's just kind of gone quiet on us with respect to what the working group is doing. Now, we have not let off on, on keeping up the pressure. Uh, we sent uh, Energy Fuels and Your Energy, the other uh, your your energy worked with us uh, at uh, with respect to the 232 petition has been we've been working with them closely on these government policy issues and we jointly sent a letter to the president uh, on Monday uh, asking as as they're evaluating all the downstream risk that are resulting as we've learned from this coronavirus outbreak. Uh, that we need to look at also our energy sector and uranium being one of those energy sectors needs to be looked at, particularly with respect to how these state-owned entities are beginning to consume, be more and more of a supplier to our domestic demand. And I believe that's that's a message you're going to receive. So I, I believe that the, the working group does have some positive outcomes for us. I wish I knew I could tell you what they are. So everything I'm saying is basically speculation. Uh, but uh, we believe, based on our response, our, our conversations, and everything else, that there's going to be more to it than just uh, uh, the president's budget. Uh, we just couldn't. I could not tell you what it is because uh, I don't know. And uh, as far as how the utilities respond, uh, that's another. That's more difficult to do because uh, 
the, the utilities speak, uh, they talk mostly about cost. They talk mostly about their fragile uh, uh, business case with respect to cheap natural gas and subsidized renewables and how difficult it is to operate. But now we've seen a shift with respect to the utilities themselves and how they operate because we've seen the states stepping in where the federal government uh, would have, you know, we would look, look to the federal government to step in to support the nuclear industry as being critical to our national infrastructure to the states doing that. Uh, and we've seen plants that were scheduled to go offline like the Davis Bessey uh, and Beaver, Beaver Valley were scheduled to go down, but are now taking fuel reloads. I remember talking to the, uh, the, the fuel buyer, who's a very, was, he's retired now, but he was a very good friend of mine, uh, saying that uh, they weren't expecting to buy any more nuclear fuel because they're expecting to shut those plants down. Well, that's obviously changed. We see a bit more optimism within the, the, the utility fuel buyer side as far as their business case and whether they're going to be able to sustain their business. Now, we have not got any, any real guidance from them as to whether they intend to change their buying patterns or anything else like that. Obviously, uh, when we have our conversations with them, they've got their own confidential business plans, as, as we do. And so we hope to start seeing some more requests for proposals from uh, utilities. There's been a few floating around, uh, but it's, uh, it's not as as heavy, and I think that they may have been more active today if it had, we didn't have to deal with this coronavirus response. Uh, uh, we may have seen more utility coming in the market looking for more longer-term uh, supply agreements, but I think right now that's been kind of taken a back notice uh, to just to having their nuclear plants operate fully with a full staff. Well, I hope at a minimum that the administration looks a little bit more to just state-sponsored supply of uranium, but also the state-sponsored supply of nuclear power globally. I hope they look beyond just the uranium supply chain part of it. I hope they get to the top and take a look at what's going on at the top, because not only do we have state-sponsored uranium supply, we have state-sponsored turnkey nuclear power solutions being sold around the world. And I think the U.S. government needs to wake up and figure that out and actually take action in a substantial way. And one of the other things, too, is what are your thoughts on the utility, the fuel buyers, looking at what's going on right now? Are they concerned? Obviously, we know COVID-19 is a problem right now, but are they waiting for that fuel group outcome? And then also, are they waiting for confirmation in price, uranium price environment? The latter is probably what's driving their decision-making process more right now, knowing where the market's going to be. Fuel buyers are incentivized by meeting their budget requirements or coming under their budget requirements. They're incentivized to do that. And with uncertainty, they don't like uncertainty because they can't predict what their budget is going to be next year, so to speak. And so uh, they they have a tendency uh, to uh, step step back and wait for some kind of signal that tells them one way or the other. Uh, even with uh, prices, when prices were going down, they were entering in the market to sweep up cheap stuff because uh, you know it's it's still an uncertainty as what's going on for the, the, the world as far as the global fuel supply goes. And so they got a little time. They have, uh, they still have inventories they draw on. They still have uh, term agreements, term sales that are going on right now, deliveries. They got a little time. Uh, and so I think they're going to step back. They're going to sit back and watch what the market conditions are because they just don't know uh, what's going to be permanent, what's going to be temporary. 
as far as waiting on the working group, I think that was uh, they're mostly waiting on seeing what the strategy is the government has going forward. Is there going to be a, a drive to force the nuclear utilities to support more domestic uh, nuclear fuel, whether it's enrichment? Uh, we can't rule out the enrichment segment because the United States no longer has an, a non-obligated U.S. origin source of your enrichment other than the only place they can get LEU that's uh, non-obligated has to come from the HEU stockpile. And that's as was best characterized by uh, one of the DOE uh, spokesmen uh, two years ago, uh, I can't believe it's been two years, in late 2018, that that stockpile is finite and diminishing. So there's what could be in what's in the, the working group, we believe, is some kind of discussion about the enrichment uh, capacity because uh, they're working on it at Y12 out at uh, uh, the Oak Ridge National Labs, as well as uh, Centris has technology for that as well for domestic enrichment. And uh, the, you know, the reason why they, they want to know what the working group is going to do is because until 1982, all the nuclear utilities had to buy U.S. Uh, origin enrichment. It was, a, it was a law that they had to do to follow. And that was relieved in 82 to 84. And of course, consequently, that's also the last time the DOE said the domestic uranium industry was viable. But they want to see what those demands are going to be, requirements. They believe they've dodged a bullet with the Section 232 on buying domestic, being forced to buy domestic uranium. But the enrichment side, that's still a bit of a question mark. And so they're kind of waiting to see what that ha what happens with that. When you talk about the nuclear fuel group, working group, and the leadership at the, at the administration, I would have to say that the, the Secretary Briette is the right guy for the nuclear industry. He knows our industry. Uh, he's saying the right things. The strategy within that they're talking about, I've heard it come out of the State Department as well uh, as the Treasury Department is that, and Commerce Department, is that we want to change the paradigm and make the U.S. a dominant force in nuclear power. Now, saying it and executing it are two very different things. But at least we got the leadership at the top levels, not just banning about fancy words and everything. They're actually looking at ways to take action. My expectation is a nuclear fuel working group report will have that roadmap in it. We won't know everything because there'll be stuff that'll be confidential or, or top secret because it is pretty broad is our understanding. But we believe that'll provide a roadmap and the utilities are waiting to see what that roadmap is going to look like with respect to enrichment, fuel su supply chain requirements and security of supply chain requirements that are out there that, that may be in that report that may force them to change their business plans. Yes, and hopefully they'll hang around long enough with the elections coming up this year. As you know, with the elections, typically most of these people take a hike from their office. Hopefully there'll be some certainty after this election and that the same direction gets sought, even if there is changes in the office. Hopefully there isn't. But yeah. just for the purposes of our industry, I think that the current administration is best suited, even though you know we all might have our differences on some of their policies outside of this industry. But so far, the current administration policy with this industry has been in the right direction, in my view. Yeah. So I was going to switch over here, Paul, and uh, move on to some other topics. I wanted to ask you about what experiences during the last boom period for uranium remain to be important for you. So those may be lessons learned out of those experiences. And how are you implementing that experience at Energy Fuels for this next cycle? Glad you asked, because it's been on, foremost on my mind. Uh, what I saw in the last boom, it was the first movers that got rewarded the most. Uh, you know, the 
being able to get out the door have, and, and getting operations up as fast as possible to be able to respond to market demand was the one, and the entities who did that were the ones that got rewarded the most. And so I can only speak from my, my experience is that when I worked for Mustang and Uranium, again, it was a privately held company. It is a privately held company, uh, at least Mustang is. And, uh, but we were rewarded with uh, exceptional uh, sales price of Uranium. We were bringing in uh, quite a bit of revenue as a result of the fact that we were able to basically drive the market on our, people like to call our auctions of Uranium. We were able to drive up the price. We wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't been a first mover. And what allowed us to do that is that in the interim, in the late 90s, well, the early 2000s, the late 90s and the early 2000s, Stania, the company, the family that runs it, continued to permit and license the Alta Mesa facility. And they got the licenses and permits put in place so that, and they had the ability to finance it uh, with respect to using, you know, uh, with their oil and gas operations. That allows getting the production right away. And the other thing is having an experienced team. Uh, what helped me tremendously at that at that start was that uh, I was able to collect. Because keep in mind, the uranium industry was still pretty much uh, a small segment, and you know, no one thought it was really going to come back uh, like it did. And so there was a lot of available talent I knew how to find. I stayed in t- contact with these people from the time I left Uranium Resources to the time I was at, ended my term at uh, Rio Agua and moved to Mustania. So I stayed in touch. I was able to utilize my prior relationships to get experienced people on board. So we were able to take Alta Mesa within one year of sinking the first well uh, for the, the well field to the time we commissioned a plant and started up the dryer. It took less, it took uh, one year from the time we we spun, we turned to the right on our first drill well to the time we dried our first drum of yellow cake. And that was a pretty spectacular one because we started from ground zero. It was a complete greenfield activity. But I had experienced people allowed me to do it, that allowed me to do it quickly without uh, without any hitches or any anything else and operate within exceeding expectations when we started up. And in fact, by the time we got the dryer commissioned, we had so much yellow cake uh, sitting in, in tanks and uh, 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 mud tanks and everything else on the pad, we were able to churn that out pretty fast by the time it took a long time to get that inventory, working inventory down uh, just to uh, catch up and uh, allow people to actually work around the plant without having to run into a tank full of yellow cake. I see the same opportunities now, and that's one of the reasons why Energy Fuels, I believe, is well-placed. Uh, we have three permanent license uh, operations that have licensed well fields ahead of them, at least with respect to Nichols Ranch and Alta Mesa. They already have permanent license resources that are ready to go. All it takes is an investment into well field. Uh, the plant facilities are there, the license are there, so there's no uh, hiccup between time we make the decision to go and we can be delivering product and hopefully faster than any of anybody else out there from our perspective. The other thing we leverage is that we've got the, the White Mesa Mill, which is currently operating. We're running alternate feeds, which is probably, if you look at it from a business side, it's probably one of the most profitable uh, ways to uh, recover uranium in our segment. And that's basically taking uranium as a byproduct material uh, off out of these uh, various streams coming from other sources. But it keeps that experienced workforce at that mill, but also allows us to keep improving our, our mill process so we're not always stagnant. So the mill will be continuous operating. And we have, uh, we, the other thing we've done is we've got licensed 
uh, or permitted mines that can supply that mill fairly quickly. So we've got the LaSalle complex, which we spent quite a bit of time last year rehabbing, trying to respond to the, uh, uh, the vanadium market, which ultimately uh, disappointed us. But it's fully permanent and can start delivering ore today if we get to, if we had to, well, it'd probably take a couple of weeks to go look, round up all the miners again. Uh, but we could probably be up and running fairly quickly there as well. So and we've been focusing on the uh, ability to respond. We're trying, as we go through this time of difficult times, we're focusing on retaining our sites, our properties, and our, our talent because that's what's gonna be needed uh, when things improve and it's gonna improve fairly fast. As we saw in the last run up, it, the leading indicators showed up and we began responding, but it really took off and the one who was moving was the one who got rewarded. And I wanna just talk a little bit more about that, Paul, cause you brought up some points that I wanted to cover. Can you speak to, just give us a little more detail on the operational readiness as far as startup, the timeline and production capacities over time in the event favorable prices hit the market or the company receives a contract to supply material. Can you just speak briefly to the operational readiness, the duration and the time needed to really get up to what you guys see as your initial capacities? I want to start off with the fact that we've already been, we've been building an inventory of, of uh, uranium for the last couple of years at uranium we weren't able to sell. We were, we were able, maintaining that inventory for better time. So if we do get a, uh, a immediate demand for uranium at a, at a price we want, you know, at a, a reasonable price, we can respond quickly while we're ramping up production. So we can supply into any agreements that we need to at inventory uh, immediately. Uh, that's, that gives us a leg up with respect to responding to demand. The other thing is that we've got Nichols Ranch, which is just is, has been operating. Uh, even at a low level, we still have uh, the ability to, all it takes is putting in about six months worth of drilling to be able to bring that back into production as a production facility, uh, rather than just uh, working off of a, a ore body that's been depleted. Uh, so it's ready to go. We also have the capacity to increase our flow rate. We've acquired uh, some key equipment in 2018 to increase our flow rate up to our license condition uh, limits. That is up to 3,500 GPM. Plant originally was designed and built and it was, had limited flow capacity, uh, but uh, we have the capacity and the, the expertise to be able to put these columns in when the time is right uh, and the money is available to get it ramped up fairly quickly so we can be running at maximum capacity there. At uh, the White Mesa up mill, obviously it's still running. Uh, so uh, all it is a matter of getting some feed. We already have some feed we produced during our test mining program, but uh, we can get ore there and deliver probably uh, within enough time to be have enough capacity to kick that mine off within six to eight months uh, if the price is right to support LaSalle as a uh, source of feed. And then the Canyon mine can also be brought up. It'll take about a year to begin stockpiling enough ore at uh, White Mesa to be able to run that ore run. So we were talking about a year to 18 months for uh, depending on uh, timing and schedule with respect to Canyon being able to produce. And Alta Mesa, uh, we could be up and running within a, within 12 months at uh, probably you know ran, uh, at a rate that would be equivalent to 700,000 pounds a year. So we believe that we're ready to go. And even though those uh, we're talking six to 12 months, possibly 18 months on some of the mines, I believe that's in the window that would be considered a good fast response 
to a, a market demand, whether it's from the government or from the utilities, we would be able to respond in and we can bridge uh, into those, those, uh, that demand with our inventory. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good setup, a good strategy in place. And I continue to believe that energy fuels will have one of the best, if not the best, U.S. domestic response. And then also one of the other things, you guys are still, the vanadium circuit at White Mesa is still running. You guys are still doing some stockpiling of vanadium for future sales. I actually wrapped it up in the first quarter. Uh, we we uh, decided at the end of uh, 2019 to wrap it up simply because the vanadium markets don't support it. And the beauty of it is that it's all sitting on our ponds. We know we can go get it. It's not like it's a, 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 an elusive critter that we have to go chase down in the woods. It's it's all there, captured. We know right. we can capture it. And uh, but I will say, you know, looking back on that decision to do that, although the market didn't reward us for it, I'm not talking about the, the equity markets. I'm talking about the the Canadian market. It, we weren't rewarded by a, a sustained price. I will say that the, the efficiency and the quality of the product we produced exceeded what we were told to expect before we did it. And that, I hold that as a credit to the people out at the, out at the White Mesa Mill and uh, their, their capability of doing better than expected. We're sitting on quite a bit of inventory, and I, I'd have to go back and look through our annual report to be able to tell exactly what our inventory is sitting out there, but it's significant. Where if the price of an item comes back, we can easily uh, sell that and liquidate that into cash, convert that into cash quickly. Uh, and that's been exciting. Uh, the, and I will say that uh, even though it's not, not going to be a key part of our business, the success we saw with the vanadium circuit and the fact that we could recover vanadium such high purities so efficiently uh, led us to, as you know, as the government looks at all these other critical minerals, has uh, allowed us to look at White Mesa as another uh, source of uh, critical strategic materials, that is, these rare earths. And uh, honestly, that came about as through a, a conversation that was prompted by the Department of Defense. And as we've done more work on it, taking the lessons we've learned, uh, it's become more of an opportunity. So the White Mesa Mills continues to be a, a truly a strategic asset. It's got a lot of business upside now. It's got a lot of segments to it that allow it to, to provide revenue, but it still allows us to focus on being a uranium producer. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a good asset. And the vanadium, I think, is a good piece of optionality for, and it will come the day that comes where you guys have a nice price to liquidate that into the market. Paul, give the audience a view into your day-to-day -day activities at Energy Fuels. Just walk us through your average day. Tell us what you do as far as all your different tasks. Uh, who you're working with, and how you're preparing value creation going forward. So my day-to-day -day task, well, varies depending on what the priorities of the day are. But I have, I have uh, several distinct operations that report into me, and so they I, uh, that is Alta Mesa, Nichols Ranch, White Mesa. Then the, the obviously we have the mines that are on standby uh, as well. I got people in the field of that, including, and also I have uh, the permitting, regulatory affairs, under accountabilities as well as technical services. So I have close interaction with all those groups every day. Now, there's not a, a I don't have like a, a morning briefing with everybody. It's more of a uh, an ad hoc communication. And uh, so I spend time staying on top of those activities. Uh, I, I do uh, obviously spend more of my attention on what's going on at the mill simply because there's activity, there's significant activity going on there. And uh, with all these new uh, operations and these business opportunities. So I spend time 
as well, working with our mill manager to be able to help him, support him with his, his daily day-to-day activities and always talking about ways we can do things better. And with the ISR facilities, it's daily maintaining that operation, keeping people safe. Uh, we, we focus on safety uh, of our workforce. Uh, and uh, so we, we, I, I stay in touch with our folks on relative to that. Also, there's all this stuff going on with respect to the nuclear, you know, the government affairs activities. So that comes up on a regular basis. There's always something coming up every day. We have government affairs consultant and we work closely with in D.C. I spent time we're working on a, uh, the renegotiation of the, uh, the Russian suspension agreement because we're an interested party on that process. We see that as a, as a market uh, stabilizer uh, with respect to uh, protecting the domestic industry. We focus on that because we want to make sure that uh, the uranium industry is being heard, not just the enrichment co- uh, community or the utility community. Uh, and so all that combines into a very busy day, uh, in addition to uh, strictly dealing with operate, running the company and my role in that, that is uh, uh, supporting the finance group and other activities. Uh, we always have something, it's never a dull moment uh, in the day-to-day activities at, at Energy Fuels, even though we're working remotely, uh, my days are long. Uh, the only the only challenge I have with the remote working is that uh, I never get a really a chance to decompress just with a commute going to and from work. That's my decompress time, and uh, I don't have that now. But I miss that. But you know, it's normally I would be also spending more time physically at the sites. At the mill, I try to get out there once or twice a month. Now that's restricted because of the uh, uh, the coronavirus. I try to get to uh, Alton Mason Nichols Ranch at least once a month, not because they require constant attention. It's more to be part of the the, the operation and being engaged because the folks I got there, I got top quality. We got top quality people working these operations and they don't need a lot of day-to-day oversight from me. They, I, I could literally go a week without talking to any of them and everything would be just fine, but I don't because it's important as, as a business to be engaged with what's going on on a day-to-day basis. And so I do that just to stay on top of things. I even stay on top of what's going on in the various states, the government, the state government levels because they all impact us. It's amazing how uranium is such a political commodity and uh, you always have to be on, on top of things not only just on the market side but on, and the operation side, but also on the government side, just to make sure that there's not new threats coming in that you have to respond to. And so it makes for a very busy day. I appreciate you sharing all that with us and talking about those details, because we don't hear that a lot, and it's good to hear it coming from a guy like yourself to discuss that. I want to talk, something you touched on earlier, sector talent. Mm-hmm. I believe to some degree that there is a growing lack of expertise in this business. From your position, are you seeing a shortage of good people? And what ideas do you have to cultivate new talent before the current key expertise leaves the sector? That is a good question. I may end up giving away trade secrets, but oh well. (laughs) Just a little humor there. So I see a critical issue with respect to talent. We have uh, the workforce is getting smaller and smaller by the week. Uh, not just us, it's throughout the industry. All you have to do is go back to the Energy Information Administration website, look at their production reports, and you'll see how the employment's going down. That's people leaving the industry. And my biggest concern 
is not necessarily the talent that's being lost because we're keeping retaining it. We're all getting gray in the head. And, uh, you know, I got people who have 40 years worth of experience at work under me that are critical to, we talk about responding to marketing conditions. I need those people to be training the new guys. And my concern is that by the time we see a market response, those guys are going to be retired and gone, unfortunately. And, and of course, I could probably keep them on as consultants, but uh, that's the challenge we have is that we, you know, the longer this, this, this market, uh, the market staying where it's at and the, the lack of any uh, real significant catalyst to really cause a response to where we can start getting back into production, hiring people today, it's going to be more and more difficult to retain the expertise, but also it's going to be more difficult to train new people because we lose that expertise that, that I depend on to train them. So the things I'm doing right now is we're trying to spread out some of the expertise amongst some of our younger people. So uh, we have geologists who, are, who have become miners. Uh, we have geologists who become uh, operations supervisors, you know, dealing with operations and running a plant and stuff they never would have envisioned doing. Uh, so we're trying to capture that talent and retain it. Uh, we're also, uh, so that's what we're doing today is keeping our young people engaged and involved with the upper, with the running of the company so that, uh, you know, that they are able to be some of these, what I call the people who are going to train the new guys. Uh, I'm keeping an eye on where people go in the industry as they either exit or I'm keeping their contacts. I stay in contact with them on a regular basis. There's people who worked for me 15 years ago uh, that are young that want to come back in the industry, but they're waiting for a signal to come back. And let me tell you, I'm keeping them on my uh, on my social media contacts, you know, and text messaging and everything else. Maybe that they find a better opportunity, but I, I want to stay engaged because that's how I did it the last time we had a run up. So trying to pull on all those strings and threads and retain those contacts and that networking has been vital. It's something I... I enjoy doing and just staying involved and staying involved with the industry because people do move in, out, in and out of companies also and staying in touch with them as, as well. I think it's very important and I think it's something that's been overlooked by the industry. And of course, you know, market forces in the industry have also caused that to be challenged. Obviously, we know a healthy industry will typically gather more attention and more talent coming in. And I think we will see that day again as prices ramp up, of course, so will talent and, and attention gets put onto the sector. I think that there is some replenishment that happens, but the talent transfer um, is severely lacking at this moment. And, and I certainly applaud anything that you guys are doing, Paul, to lead and to transfer some of that talent as folks decide to retire and go out of the business. And I think that that's a very important piece for the future of the industry as well. Um, the entire uranium mining industry, what have you seen that's been done right over the last 10 years? Besides, of course, uh, you could argue that some of the things that have been done uh, has offered us potentially this opportunity before us today. What has also been done wrong over this period, Paul, over the last 10 years? So what do you see that the industry has done right and wrong over the last 10 years specific to uranium mining, besides obviously doing some things to provide the opportunity that's before us today? Well, I'd say what, what we've done wrong is failed to note as an industry, and I'm going to speak strictly as a domestic industry, there was a period of time after, you know, the Fukushima Daiichi 
incident uh, where the market was just in great turmoil and contracting and focused on on things like government inventories impacting the market. But what we slept at the wheel was the what was going on with the state-owned enterprises. When I talk about state-owned enterprises, I talk about mainly Kazakhstan, uh, what's going on in Kazakhstan and the, the rapid growth of production. It really caught us off guard. It's kind of like we woke up, you know, we we're doing all these other battles, trying to keep our companies, uh, you know, we we're dealing with a government, uh, an administration that was hostile to to mining and business. And we were constantly fighting, pushing back against the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It was becoming much more difficult to deal with, with an activist environmental protection agency and a, a, a DOE that was basically didn't care about nuclear power and didn't really care much about, uh, obviously, the domestic fuel supply chain uh, because they were taking actions that were very destructive to uh, nuclear fuel supply chain. So we were constantly in a fight, a, a game of defense. And uh, we did a lot of stuff right on that. We did a lot of uh, good things, but we missed the big picture, which was what was going on globally to our market. We got so insular and then so feeling like we're up against the ropes, we weren't looking out into the audience uh, to see if there was a fight going on in the audience outside the boxing ring. And what's happened is our market, we lost our market share simply because the, the state-owned enterprise were able to respond quickly before we had all our ducks in a row. Uh, and our res ultimate response came with uh, the work we did with your Energy on the 232 petition. But obviously, uh, it wasn't, you know, it took too long for us to respond to what was going on internationally. Uh, we became so insular. Uh, now, I, I'm not going to criticize anybody for it. I just think that's one of the misses we had. It would have been, uh, if we could have responded sooner, we could have been in a much better place today. Uh, now, a lot of things we did right uh, is that uh, uh, during the interim, uh, during periods of downturn, companies continued to focus on a licensing and permitting of their facilities. We've seen some consolidation. I would like to say that Energy Fuels was a leader in doing some of the good things by bringing in some of these key properties that would may have struggled on their own to restart or to be uh, advanced. By bringing them under our umbrella, we've, we've assured they're part of more of a, more of a strategic vision. Uh, the industry has done a lot of good work on demonstrating that we can the U.S. could be competitive uh, worldwide, even though we don't have advantages these state owner prices have. We have a very difficult regulatory regime, but we've become very good at it. And over the last three years, we've been working with the administration to basically take some of the constraints off that would have been in place had uh, there not been the change of administration we saw in 2016. Uh, so we've done some things right. We've been able to show we can do it safely, environmentally friendly. Uh, we've looked at, there's been innovation that's been going on in the industry. Uh, Energy Fuels has focused, looked at, auto, we've automated more. Uh, we've, uh, we've looked at uh, other types of, you know, uh, even when we talk about vanadium, we've looked at uh, uh, ways to do uh, mine vanadium to get more value out of the ore, uranium and vanadium uh, uh, to, for when the market does respond, we'll be able to take some lessons learned in, in the right way. Um, and so those are some, you know, I, I would say if I think about the, the one thing we missed was just to, to shift to these state of enterprises and how that affected everything. But, you know, during that time we were missing that, we were also taking advantage of uh, some of the slower, the, the more difficult, challenging times to be able to do our job better. 
a lot of the actions have contributed to where we are today and, and the opportunity that's that's in front of us. And, and I know a lot of people can certainly appreciate that and where we're going. Let's talk a little bit more about peer companies in the U.S., Paul. I know that mm-hmm. you have an extensive depth uh, on this market, specifically the U.S. domestic companies and projects. When you look out over these peer companies and competitor projects, what things come to mind when you look at the operational development challenges for these companies to be successful? What I see is a, the biggest, when I'm talking about our peer group and I'm focusing on the United States, I've, I've seen every project, every uranium deposit in the U.S. through my experience, good or bad. And so I, I got a general understanding of where they go. And so what I see is that uh, we, we have some companies or in our peer group they're going to have to basically build out their production capacity before they're able to actually get into production. So in other words, they're going to have to do some greenfield development and, and construction. That right there will, will basically you know, force them into a, a time delay on responding. The other thing I've seen when you look at some of the financials of some of our peers and their expectations and what they put in their you know, looking forward, there may not be a full realization of the cost to get from point A to point B. You know, we have real operations. We know what it costs to produce. And uh, there's there's some out there who may be uh, touting much lower cost profiles, but not based on their their actual production experience, but based on uh, uh, spreadsheet mining. And uh, the thing is, I've learned in my, my experience is that, and I follow on CrossFit's uh, guidance, is that uh, no strategy survives contact with the enemy. As a result, I always build in contingencies and expectations, but also I put in experience. And that's where ICS separate from others. Uh, there are other companies within our peer group that actually have good experience, have operating experience, uh, that are probably uh, far better suited, better prepared. And uh, as a peer group, they could, they will be able to deliver results. My concerns are those who, who haven't had a, an opportunity to deliver results are the ones that are going to be uh, the most challenged. Paul, what are your objectives for energy fuels to complete in 2020? What are your plans internally and on the operations side? Our plans right now is because of all the uncertainty that's going on in the market and everywhere else is that we're focusing on reducing cost, managing our business and maintaining our, our preserving our capacity. So what that means is, is that uh, we're looking at rationalization of, of spending. Obviously, we want to get our, our spending down to a point where, where the company is sustainable. And it's getting more challenges. You look at the equity markets and everything else. And as the uncertainty resolving around what the government's going to do going forward. So we've taken a strategy. We're assuming we're not going to get, uh, we built our company plans around that we're not going to get any kind of form of immediate relief. But if we do, we'll be able to respond quickly. But we have to be realistic and rational. I think our investors insist on that from us. And so we've had to make those decisions and uh, how we act on that will be coming more, you know, more visible as we get through the year. But uh, the other thing we want to do is preserve what we have, you know, so we've got a significant hold, you know, land position we're holding on to. We believe are critical uh, for the long-term viability of the company. Uh, we don't want to be a one project once and done company. We're going to be a sustainable uh, production company that our investors can see some real return in the long term. Everything's focused around that, and you know we're trying to retain talent as much as we can. Uh, obviously, with the current uncertainties, and I'm talking about when we talk about this, the whole economy that makes it much more difficult to message internally. 
But our strategy is for this year going forward is to focus on preservation of our capacity, our operations, and managing our costs as low as possible to uh, protect our shareholder value. From an investor perspective, what should investors be doing now to best prepare themselves to take advantage of improving uranium prices? Or perhaps you could just tell us what you are doing. Well, I think they need to look at the people. The investor needs to look at the, uh, the company they want to invest into as who's going to bring, who's going to be the first responder, who's going to be able to bring the most value the quickest once the market begins to turn. You know, there's a separation between, you know, there's some exploration companies out there that just have properties uh, that are out there that may or may not come online anytime soon. I look at it from my perspective, if I'm looking at things, uh, I look at it from the ability is that one thing we know is that nothing stays the same way forever. So we see a price run up, who's going to be able to respond to that run up, but who's best prepared to sustain that value through that period of time. Knowing that when you, you look at uh, companies that have like a 10 year window to getting into production, uh, or are you looking at someone who has a six month to an 18 month window to get into production, Energy Fuels has built itself around looking at that short term window, not that long term uh, wait and see window to be able to get the most value. And that's what I see as the opportunity there. You know, the, the market is cyclical. Uh, we always have to be prepared for that. There's always market ups and downs. And if you follow the industry for long enough, you'll know that it seems like there's more downs than there are ups and our ups are more spiky. So responding in that way, looking at it from that perspective, that's what I see as being the, the best way to, to look at the market. Uh, that's my perspective. It's only an opinion, certainly not advice. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of what I do. I, that's the way I look at things. And as you can see, I've on the insider, I've been buying, you know, where I can, I've been buying stock in our own company because I believe in it. Well, that's perfect. That's the best way to demonstrate your view going forward. And Paul, why should potential investors who are listening consider energy fuels as one of their primary uranium exposure vehicles? What would you say to them? I would say to them, I see energy fuels as a real opportunity to where, where if you look at our share price where we're at now, we're at historic lows. We believe that the the industry is going to turn the market, whether it's the market through government action or through utility shifts in the market as a result of these opportunities coming up, uh, resulting from the unfortunate uh, coronavirus uh, responses. I see energy fuels as one's best leverage to uh, provide upside opportunity. If you look at our, our, our portfolio of uh, projects, our portfolio of operations, do you see they're well leveraged to quick response? Uh, we have some of the lowest cost uh, production facilities in the United States. We know what we're doing. We're experienced. Uh, we know how to leverage our assets uh, to best take advantage of it. Any kind of upside, and we think that's the best leverage an investor has, is to see that, that quick response. When you look at it from breadth of projects and everything else, I would say the best spread of, of uh, portfolio projects that allows us to take advantage, to be able to respond to any type of market upside. And Paul, the best way for the audience to reach out to the company? Well, we obviously have our website, energyfuels.com. You can contact us that. I have my own, I have email as well. Uh, my email address is pgorenson at energyfuels.com that you can reach also. We'll, we'll do what we can to be responsive as fast as we can. Well, Paul, it's been a pleasure. We covered a lot of ground, lots of good insights. Really appreciate that. Um, keep up the efforts and uh, we hope you'll come back to chat again soon. Sure thing. Well, thank you.